How's it going, everyone? It's Joe Gagne. Welcome you to a special edition of Joe vs. the World. This is our fifth anniversary show. Thereabouts, our show actually debuted in April of 2006, but given the fudging of numbers and wrestling, according to show lengths, I feel okay in uh, making this statement. And joining me, as always, or at least usual, is uh, Justin Shapiro. Justin, how you doing? I'm so excited to be on the longest-running weekly podcast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Indisputable. Episodic, though, because we leave people wondering about, you know, you and my relationship and other people on a weekly basis. So. Well, I did pluck you off the the road to WrestleMania. Apparently a literal road with Al, and he's very dedicated to that metaphor, I have to say. <laughs> Is the impression that I get. A lot of hard traveling. <laughs> All right. We're glad to have you make this... Uh, Side journey with us, and for this momentous occasion, well, nothing, nothing too different. I, I may play around with the the music, but I fear an r truth like reaction. <laughs> and when I first thought of that joke, he had had that episode where he had convulsions in the hotel room, and I debated making that joke, but it would have been too tasteless. But that's oh. long in the past, so. Yes, Easter so eggs. I would forget what town I'm in, or be a winning coach on NXT. <clears throat> NXT. Um I'm doing the show in protest of the NXT, uh, <laughs> but soldier on, I guess. Yes, we do. So, if you joined us last time, we discussed the year in review, 1990, for the WWF. So it makes only makes perfect sense we do 1991. So, I agree. If we, uh, I guess we should begin. We'll start with the the build to the Royal Rumble, where you had Sergeant Slaughter getting the title shot, the Ultimate Warrior. God knows why, but they were so. Pushing that if the Ultimate Warrior can get past Randy Savage, who was he was doing a house show program with, which was kind of odd for them to split the issue like that, but it's also somewhat what they're doing now with The Rock, Miz, and John Cena. This is true. I think Slaughter getting the title shot must have just been something uh, a perk they give to uh, former soldiers. <laughs> you come to our tapings, front row seats, and a title shot. Thank you for your service. <laughs> I don't remember Corporal Kirshner getting any kind. <laughs> Um, no, Major Guns did though. <laughs> let's uh, let's dive into the Royal Rumble held on a Saturday night. So take that UFC, which didn't exist yet. <laughs> those were, I mean, I was little, so it didn't affect me, I guess. But those Saturday night ones, when I think back, they just don't seem right. No, they really. It was just odd. Like, even though it's it's a better night as a kid because you can obviously convince your parents to let you stay up a little later, but. It's just not quite right. It's Sunday night, and you can you can fall asleep a little easier uh, on a Sunday night. You have school the next day, and it's like, but I just saw the most important <laughs> thing that's ever happened. I cannot process this, and you expect me to lay down and, and get up early the next morning. So yeah, you I had guess that uh, you had you want to talk with your friends, but they were at school the next day. The <laughs> internet or anything, you just had to stew to yourself or maybe mm-hmm. the brother mm-hmm. for uh, for the night. But anyway. The show kind of gets it gets slagged on a bit because the rumble itself isn't all that good and the whole you know Iraq deal and all that. But <laughs> the undercard was either good or great wrestling wise, or at least eventful as opposed to 1990, which was neither. But we opened with the Rockers Orient Express match, which was so damn good, and it was it was so exciting. I remember being told by my friends I had to calm down as we watched the show. <laughs> See, I was getting so into it. Exactly. I was. I was the, the beginning of the decline of American children's test scores. Here <laughs> was the Rockers tag team and all of their double team maneuvers. 
it was when when a match makes one of Sean's best of DVDs, you know it has to be pretty good. And if only Sean was a bit tougher, he may have made something of himself. <laughs> this would be. I mean, would you call this the defining Rockers match, or would you go with the uh, like a better opponent, like the Hearts or the Brainbusters? No, I go. This is this is one of the. It's got to be top ten all time mm-hmm. WWF tag matches. Maybe top five. I don't know. The only other ones I think about are the ones that come to mind are the. Um, Benoit Jericho against Triple H Austin match and the was it Benoit Angle against Ray and Edge and those are kind of more singles main, wrestlers paired main up. of any yeah. yeah and this is just straight up tag team wrestlers this wasn't even a, a big feud or a end of an angle or even for the tag belts they just said go out have a great match and they did so they were running all over the damn place and <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, the finish they did was just beyond my comprehension at the time that when we tried to recreate it with action figures and or <laughs> wrestling buddies who are of course the small men that you would sleep with in the shape of wrestlers <laughs> we couldn't even do it our brains were not we hadn't gone through enough development um, on the, the scale of like the adolescent mind to recreate the finish they did in this match again without it just it couldn't it couldn't be done no no, can't say enough good things about that. And uh, the second match, the Boss Man Barbarian, both guys worked hard. It was good. There was a strange moment where Boss Man, his Boss Man slam, and he, he got up and just kind of wandered around for a bit <laughs> going for the cover. I never really figured that out, and he won the match anyway, so I don't know why they just didn't do that. But that was another completely fine, solid match. I remember watching the two Royal Rumble tapes uh, on Rent and being like, is the big boss man scared to be in the Royal Rumble or what? <laughs> That's right. He, he had he avoided it for a few years. He got but a I, shot in '92, I think, right? Yeah, okay. but he he like fat body pressed right over the top right. rope real real soon. But um, <laughs> I cut him some slack because he was much nicer here than he was at the 1990 it's Royal it's Rumble. That's very true. So all right, and then we had an amazing segment where. Sensational Sherry tried to seduce the Ultimate Warrior into giving the Macho Man a title shot, which uh, climaxed wah, wah, with her getting on her knees in front of him and responded by having a seizure. <laughs> it's an PG, amazing. Right? I know all the stuff. I was going over this here, and I'm like, I can't believe this was PG. <laughs> amazing. If they didn't have this stuff, things would be. They would have so many protests, but it was just kind of wrestling, and it's just just nuts. I remember she was so dramatic and so just emotional about it. I kind of just wanted Warrior to give him a match. Like, why wouldn't he? (laughs) The whole thing was strange, because he's like, no, I won't fight the Macho Man. And Like, we weren't seeing these house show matches. They were kind of telling and not showing. And it's like, well, why doesn't he give him a fight? Is he afraid? And Gorilla's like, he was right tonight. To to decline (laughs) him. He's had plenty of chances. And I'm like, really? It was was a peculiar way of going about things. It's certainly for that. Especially while Sergeant Slaughter was uh, getting the title shot. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, the king of all of macho-ness doesn't stack up to Sergeant Slaughter, <laughs> a cartoon character which I knew him as before he showed up. <laughs> Didn't know he was a person. <laughs> you just thought he was training the Joes to... Uh... Yes, a Robocop was on the other show. And <laughs> just like... I don't really understand fiction or reality right now. Very so people can just, I hope, uh, Master Splinter in the Royal Rumble. <laughs> oh boy, speaking of the, uh, that, the uh, title match was actually pretty good. I give Slaughter, Slaughter actually had a pretty good year for being a turncoat and all that. <laughs> 
there's a great spot where Warrior ripped up the Iraqi flag and he stuffed it in Slaughter's mouth and it stayed there for like two minutes <laughs> when he had lockjaw. And then, um, but the Macho Man interfered. This was, oh, wow. it was really crazy. <laughs> he did. He, he ambushed the Warrior as he ran down the aisle after Sherry and also smashed him over the head with a scepter. Mm-hmm. Slaughter won the belt with a, um, he won the purple belt, I remember, with a, an elbow drop. And what did you, th- I, I was just, we all, all our jaws dropped when this happened. I like, I couldn't believe this happened. How could this happen? <laughs> I, we may have talked about it on the Quebecers show a little bit um, for devotees of our work, but um, no, this I, for a long time just haunted me, and I didn't understand. <laughs> I didn't understand that the Ultimate Warrior, who was so strong, he was so strong, and um, Sergeant Slaughter was short. He was fat. He didn't have giant muscles, which means you're not good. <laughs> and um, he loved Iraq, which I was against. So for all of this to conspire, for the warrior who I'd only seen pinned once, I just didn't understand. And I, I guess I still don't. No, the old, fat, balding man beating the chiseled god. Um, <laughs> we'll see repeated uh, nowadays. Plus, it was so unfair. It was. It was so unfair For, they actually talked about instituting instant replay, which right, right, yeah, pop cost which I guess WrestleMania in the lame skit with mm-hmm. the Packers. <laughs> but yeah, this what a travesty. I don't know. Speaking of travesties, the Mounty Coco Beware match was inexplicably cut off the Coliseum tape. <laughs> Thank God that Royal Rumble reissue a few years back uh, brought it out of the dark. I had no idea that match doesn't even exist to me. I. I think I would just see it in like between ellipses in um, Pro Wrestling Illustrated <laughs> summaries of the card, and I was like, I'm not sure. You might want to recheck that. One. <laughs> it was. I know you and I have discussed the Mountie on Alan's show, and I actually saw his his debut match on Superstars, where they acknowledged it was Jacques Rougeau, and he used to be in the Rougeau brothers tag team. But they said that he wanted more say in the world, so his logic was <laughs> going to pass. <laughs> Oh, he should have been Prime Minister Rougeau. <laughs> <laughs> it would have made more sense. I just didn't... It's one thing if you're like a KGB agent, you're an evil law enforcement person, but a Mountie? People just... In Canada in general, people just kind of shrug at and not have active feelings of enmity towards, but whatever. <laughs> yes, I don't know. I doubt he was conceived just to be like the evil opposite of the boss man in every way. Because hmm. they didn't get to them for a while. I mean, I guess not that long. No, it was once. Yeah, so, um, but, yeah, I don't know. We, I, I think we've speculated before that in the vein of IRS that Vince was, like, detained in Canada for being <laughs> too powerful or something like that. It's just, oh... Why can this be? Uh, moving on, the uh, the Rhodes family against Ted DiBiase and Virgil. And this was Dusty and Dustin's last match, so they should lose. But when you look at the story where the heel Ugh. heals your woman, beats up your kid, you have a tag match with them where the heel beats up his partner halfway through the match, and you still lose, you're not winning the best baby face in the Observer. <laughs> yes, and then Dusty and Dustin wouldn't team together. Well, I, yeah, Dusty came out for that War Games, I guess. and Maybe they teamed up on a clash first, but this was very sad to me when it happened because of their familial bond. Yeah, the whole thing... And, uh, I mean, I it, it lost in the shuffle because of, of what that man, Virgil, did in a, in a little bit, yep. but I just I remember the promos for it were the, the question of what was 
thicker blood or money. And uh, I always just thought money because it's solid. <laughs> so, um, unless it's just the number in the bank account, which is pretty ephemeral. So I don't know. But uh, DiBiase and Virgil were proved right in clean fashion, if I remember. Indeed, yeah. And uh, afterwards, they had the steal where DiBiase kept humiliating Virgil. It became too much for him after three and a half years. So uh, th- they threw in something about Virgil needing to support his family. That's why he was taking all this, but they never really brought that up again. I guess it was kind of make us feel bad for him because this wasn't, <laughs> wasn't really anything out of the ordinary DiBiase had been doing for the last three years. Right, right. But Virgil, Virgil finally attacked. Piper. Oh, go ahead. Piper got in his ear, I guess. Yeah, they were doing the big thing with Roddy Piper, helping him. Virgil finally became a man and beat up DiBiase. <laughs> crowd went nuts. They knew what they were doing back then, Justin. They would be in a oh. room to break them up today. Seriously, I uh, um, was thinking about that myself earlier when doing my preparation for this show. I said, you know what? They really did it right. I can't even think of two people who've had a, a relationship for that long one way or another. It seems like Ted DiBiase and Maurice, but they've been breaking up for like right. all that time, so I don't think that counts. They have a troubled relationship. They do. Uh, well, you know, I mean, it's just, you see, he sees what his dad did, and it just carries over. Oh, that's right. It's, um... It's how he was raised, I suppose. Hmm. Is Sapphire Ted Jr.'s mom? I don't think so. Hmm. It's never been watched. Well, it's never been disproven. I guess not. No. Anyway, the, the Rumble itself was... Um, they, they, it was hampered by having a lot of guys go a long time. I think five guys went over half an hour. And that's fine if you're Rick Martell and you did a great job. You were there for like 52 minutes. Do we really need Hercules going a half hour? <laughs> And the ring just got so clogged. There were like 11 guys in there at one point. The, not, there was not a lot in the way of stories. Like you had Tugboat getting booed out of the building and attacking the Hulkster. And I think it was like Brian Nobbs inexplicably being the third to last <laughs> in the ring. Um, it was just like Hogan won and basically won his feud with Earthquake. That's fine. And it actually felt like this was for the WrestleMania title shot, even though that wasn't implemented yet. But... It felt like a lot more was on the line than, say, last year, where it was just the Rumble match. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess Martel. Was Martel one of those stories where they put the guy in for a long time just to rib him? Because I don't think it led to, like, any big... I mean, he had the thing with Jake, but it wasn't like this was supposed to take Rick Martel to a new level of toughness. No. I think it was just like, hey, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yes. And... Uh, this leads us to uh, the main event, taped on January 28th, where uh, Duggan beat Slaughter by DQ. They named the Hulkster the number one contender. I don't know if Slaughter felt he really had to up his game being the champ, but he was just taking crazy bumps all the time. Like, I swear, he, he would do this bump where he like went over the top rope and it would smash his back against the apron. And even Vince is like, Jesus. <laughs> you, you had a, a Hogan tugboat against Bravo and Earthquake match. And they didn't even bring up that Hogan eliminated Tugboat or there was any animosity. They were just, like, best friends again. And they even kind of blew off the fact that Earthquake injured Hogan. Like, Roddy's like, oh, Hogan still has a score to settle. And Vince is like, that was a long time ago. And like, <laughs> Hogan just got his revenge, like, a week ago. <laughs> is he over? Is he over? And I was like, you must be thinking of Zeus. Because <laughs> There's also a Legion of Doom Orient Express match that uh, it doubled as a metaphor for the U.S.-Japan Auto Wars. The infamous, they've got, oh, what a feeling, but we have, oh, what a rush. Yes. Said with a lot more um, 
uh, energy than I just did, but still. I really don't understand why they have, oh, what a feeling. <laughs> <laughs> now that I think about it. <laughs> um, but no, Orient Express were not on the ascent or anything. No, they were their great not. match at the Royal Rumble. This did that help. Not at all. <clears throat> the tugboat thing, and I guess I'm jumping ahead a bit, but um, there was also this. Didn't he throw Hogan out of a battle royal a yes, little later? Yes, there okay, we'll get to that when we get to that. But there's a big WWF magazine article that really raised some questions for me. But I'm, as I would think Tugboat, who, as we talked about in the last show, was so proud of himself to be Hulk Hogan's best friend and a living human boat must have been just simmering inside. And he looked across the ring at Earthquake and he was like, we're not so different, you and me. <laughs> Uh, this uh, this main event is on YouTube, and they have commercials included. One of which is for peanut butter Snickers, which the <laughs> new hot product now, peanut butter Snickers. So there you mm. go. Uh, moving on to February, this is apropos of nothing, but we touched on Greg Valentine's face turn last time, in which with the rhythm and heels broke up. But the, hon- the honky tonk man left before they could feud, so <laughs> him being really lame because he never won, and he was just a guy like he was a heel for so long. I never really felt the need to cheer him. Even even Slaughter, when he turned face, I felt more sympathy for. But Greg Valentine, he just he looked like your grandfather. He was old. He wasn't interesting, and he lost all the time. So, <laughs> yes, I I didn't get to start watching a TV until after WrestleMania. So I watched the Royal Rumble on videotape, and I was used to Valentine. As a jerk, yeah. and he comes out in the rumble, and I think he was—he must have been fighting with some Jimmy Hart guy, Dino Bravo, maybe. Sure. And uh, it was just like, whoa, what's going on? And uh, so, I, being that I supported any good guy at the time, I was like, well, thank you, Greg Valentine, <laughs> but um, not that much. No. Remember when we? Oh, I, I'm sorry. I also wanted to say it was also a very weird rumble for me because I think there were two guys who I'd never seen in any other capacity and would never see again. Oh, well, let me rumble. let me see if I can guess them. Was one of them Shane Douglas? Indeed, it was. Um, Saba Simba, the other one. You got it. <laughs> I just didn't understand. Like I thought it, and I don't think they're on any compilation tapes, Coliseum videos, or anything that came right around that time either. And I, I know Shane Douglas. He, when Shawn Michaels had the knee injury, he was a fill-in rocker for a while, which I'm sure he hated. <laughs> it was then, funny because when everyone would do their little Royal Rumble promos, they would have, of course, the green screen background. They would have like the guy's logo, like the Warlord or something. And when Shane Douglas did his, it just had the WWF logo. <laughs> I did not take him very seriously as a competitor. Was Shane Douglas's promo? Did it go like Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Big John Stud? Hulk Hogan, and they can all kiss my ass. <laughs> Good thing Dick Flair hasn't shown up yet. <laughs> Classic. Uh, remember last time when we harped on WWF following up their angles? Oh, here's one that was dropped uh, around this time. Brutus Beefcake in a mask would run in and randomly attack heels like Earthquake and Rick Martel. And I've heard different names for him. I've heard the Mariner. He's from Seattle. Mm-hmm. I've heard running man and I think fur face and this this was dropped after a bit I guess he wasn't beefcake wasn't recovered enough from his uh, parasailing accident to be active in the ring because when he came back he hosted an interview show but this was very strange like it was just never explained like things usually tied up back then 
Yeah, I, uh, it, it was just, when, when it didn't pay off, it shattered a world in a way that it in no way does now. Now, like, huge angles will be dropped after a week, and <laughs> I'll just say, that's the cost of doing business. <laughs> hey, maybe they're getting Melina and John Morrison back. Nope, sorry. <laughs> Changed their mind. I mean, we watched months of Seamus bragging about taking out <laughs> Triple H and The Undertaker losing uh, five straight times to his brother Kane and being buried alive by the men then known as the Nexus. <laughs> and at least Triple H took care of it. The Undertaker, he was, I guess it's happened to him so many times that he just doesn't take it personally. <laughs> it's like, ah, oh, I was buried alive by gang heels, but, you know... As the last outlaw, I forgive you. Let's ride my unicorn around for a bit and cheer myself <laughs> up. Very strange. Brother Love, de- I mean, uh, no, sorry, Paul Bearer debuted. He, de- he debuted on the Brother Love show, who he would take over for in a bit when the Ultimate Warrior just beat up Brother Love after he said the Warrior had no chance at WrestleMania. So <laughs> thanks for the memories, Brother Love. Thanks for the new memories, Paul Bear. Hmm. True. And uh, also debuting was The Viking which I guess wasn't sexy enough because he soon became Berserker. And uh, he was a cult favorite between my friends and myself because he was, we thought the hussing and the, he would just randomly yell, he would fall down, he would kick the air. And we had no idea he was just doing a Brody act. Mm-hmm. <laughs> was, was, uh, I, I watched some, some John Nord, just some, you know, just some YouTube clips. He didn't seem to be doing this before. Was Meltzer like pissed he was like ripping off Bruiser Brody who got murdered? <laughs> I not. I mean, I've read those, and I don't think so. He would just be matter-of-factly say he was being Bruiser Brody, and it was weird. <laughs> not very good. No. He would win all his uh, squash matches by count-out, which I thought was different. I thought it was... I'm like, we well, should pin the guy, because obviously pinfalls are more impressive than count-outs. More money. Yeah. But he had Mr. Get it. as his manager, so we all know how that turns out. Yep. He may get more evidence as to why he finished so poorly. <laughs> you know... Most Mr. Observer of the Year polls. Mr. Fuji managing a WWF champion. I'm going to make a point <laughs> for here. When, like, Bobby Heenan and Jimmy Hart never did. It's kind of like Doc Rivers, the, the coach of the Celtics, <laughs> who people thought was a bumbling buffoon for a long time. But then when he found the right talent, it kind of it overcame his problems as a coach, but when Doc Rivers won the title in, I think, 2008, he didn't immediately challenge the San Antonio Spurs. To- <laughs> oh. I think Mr. Fuji, he, and when he went back with probably his staff to break down what was going wrong, and uh, <laughs> so it, it said, in one column it said, Japanese, and it, underneath it said, Orient Express, and in the right side it said, Big, and it said... Warlord, Barbarian, Berserker, and they were all crossed off. And then he circled the word Japanese, and he circled the word big, and then he understood what needed to happen. <laughs> Leap over, uh, went off over his head. Uh, WrestleMania was uh, taking shape. You had Hogan Slaughter, you had Warrior Savage in the career match. Perfect boss man for the IC title. But for the tag titles, they didn't have a feud going, so they had a battle royal to determine who got the shot, and it was it's weird because the Hart Foundation, they were doing a house show program with Power and Glory. And if the WWF wanted a heel team to transition the belts to the LOD, I don't see why they didn't just do Power and Glory, who were a pretty hot act at the time. But they went with the Nasty Boys, who had just jumped ship a few months earlier. And I guess they wanted to stick it to WCW because they had taken the Nasty Boys during that hot Steiners feud. But anyway, the Nasties won after Power and Glory eliminated the LOD setting up their match. And I mean, or if you're not going to... Yeah, I don't know why they just do... 
Legion of Doom and the Heart Foundation, which I know they're face teams, but they did a match for Coliseum Video, and it was really good. So, I don't know. I guess I just wanted to... I was going to say the same thing. I guess... um, Sorry for talking over you, but uh, I guess there was just zero interest in putting together super cards. They were just like, you know, need a match to fill out the show. (laughs) uh, The case there. Now, as far as primetime wrestling goes, people... Someone looked at that and said, Gorilla Monsoon, Bobby Heenan, just not cutting it these days. We need more peach tracksuits. So they <laughs> they redid the show. They moved it in front of a studio audience with Vince and Bobby as hosts and uh, Lord Al Hayes as an announcer. And they would have wrestlers make an appearance and do skits. It, was, it would be really weird to see, like, The Undertaker in front of a studio audience, like, being menacing. It was... I don't know. They also resurrected uh, Jameson, who was from the Bobby Heenan show. I did not know that until I watched his uh, documentary. <laughs> he has a DVD out? <laughs> not Jameson, no. Bobby Heenan. Oh, excuse me. <laughs> yeah, Vince would always wear these horrible outfits, and it was just, I don't know, it was just strange. I It was um, all I knew was that version of the show. Oh. So I just accepted it for whatever reason, because it was wrestling and it was on TV. I was mm. like, yeah, that checks out. <laughs> I have uh, four distinct memories um, from this era. It was... I remember the warlord throwing Jameson off a cliff, like literally. Well, not literally. <laughs> I remember um, Shinichiro Tenru, of all people, showing up, and Bobby Heenan being profoundly racist, like offering him rice and stuff. And I remember the Quake Burgers, more on that in a sec, and uh, there's an epic skit where Sergeant Slaughter was there, he spotted like a marine in Hulkamania gear sitting in the crowd. So he like he hazed him throughout the show. He like stuck his head in the toilet and made him do push ups and said Hulk Hogan was slime and that was how they built WrestleMania. <laughs> um the Tenru thing is funny. It would be great if there was some footage of one of our greatest American wrestlers on Japanese one of those weird nightmare world Japanese game shows just being humiliated as a fat American and stuff. <laughs> But um, the thing I remember most came, I I guess, a little later during the summer when Sergeant Slaughter and the Axis of Evil took Sean Mooney hostage. Do you remember that? (laughs) I don't remember this. And uh, they, um, they, (laughs) I don't think they took him very far (laughs) because it all played out over the course of the show, but they would have him film like hostage videos and just being like, this man, Sergeant Slaughter, says that he's going to win his match at SummerSlam. And for now, has uh, violently imprisoned me, Sean Moon. So, back to you guys. Man, <laughs> what a trooper. <laughs> he went back to work. Anyway, let's uh, let's jump into WrestleMania. Seven kind of kind of has a... Uh, people have bad feelings about it due to the whole Iraq War thing, which had actually pretty much ended a month earlier. And it's funny because if it was now, with our completely accelerated culture, people would have almost forgotten like what the problem was. <laughs> and um, they're also going to hold it in the LA Sports Coliseum, which seats 100,000 people, a fact they hyped during WrestleMania six. And either due to a bomb scare or low ticket sales, depending who you ask, it was moved to the much smaller LA Memorial Sports Arena. And when I remember watching it, I'm like, wait, aren't there supposed to be 100,000 people here? This looks <laughs> a lot smaller than that. It's also indoors. <laughs> It, uh, no, I, I don't get it. I don't know what match they expected when they first conceived of it to sell out the LA Coliseum with, but this was not quite Hogan versus Andre. No, it was not. If they had. I mean, I, I guess Saddam had a lot of heat at that point, but they really couldn't make it carry over. No. If they had done Hogan Warrior 2, 
do you think that they would have <clears throat> done all right? Um, in the big picture, it seems like that would fit much more in like the iconic WrestleMania legacy of Mega Match main events. At the time, I guess they probably felt like Warrior just wasn't cutting it, and a babyface match wouldn't have cut it. I don't think Warrior turning heel would have really made sense. So, for history's sake, that would be be obviously a lot better. For then, I guess they just figured that that. Well, yeah, I suppose they thought that Sergeant Slaughter and latching himself onto some of that sweet, sweet Iraq <laughs> would have made him like the biggest deal in wrestling in years and years. Hmm. Not, uh, oh, go ahead. Not so much. Now, this show you can kind of split like almost down the middle between the plus column and the negative one. And on the plus column, as far as wrestling matches go, they range from like, like hey, that was pretty good to uh, wow, that was really awesome. And the other half is like, matches are bad, they're very short, or like just inexplicable or sometimes all three so but I mean you know uh, I like the main event I like Hogan winning the belt for the <laughs> record breaking third time which is funny because you need three <laughs> world titles to be taken seriously these days and um, the Savage I don't uh, see how Punk has three world titles and he's only just now being taken seriously yeah. <laughs> and you had the, the Savage uh, Warrior retirement match certainly Warrior's best match and up there with Savage too that whole deal everyone loves and I even love I I actually have a fondness for the British Bulldog Warlord match because you know Warlord was a jerk and uh, Bulldog broke his move and then beat him with his move and I appreciated that story and I, I don't know why they fought on every other pay-per-view the rest of the year I thought they pretty much wrapped up their story there but there you go the story of Warlord versus British Bulldog was basically oi mate why just because you're strong <laughs> you have to be so mean I can be strong and I'm not mean and then he went out and proved it mm. I think uh, the Rockers had a good match uh, Bossman Perfect was okay but it was uh, a little disappointing the Hart Foundation had a very good match with the Nasty Boys it was um, yeah and you had Taker uh, kicking off his win streak against Jimmy Snuka which was originally announced as being against Tugboat it was left off the show I guess maybe they figured he couldn't tombstone Tugboat because he was too fat, but there you go. Because I remember Tugboat cutting promos inexplicably on The Undertaker during, I think, January, and he's compared him to, I believe, a great white shark and said he was going to <laughs> ram him or some kind of nautical reference. I, um... Yeah, imagine if, if that match had ended with, uh, like, say, Undertaker won and then kept beating him up and got disqualified. <laughs> Where would we be today? I have no idea. They'd be in trouble. They would be in trouble. They would have no main event. Um, Nasty Boys and Heart Foundation was a, a miniature version of the Sergeant Slaughter Warrior deal because they cheated super bad. They used a, a, a motorcycle helmet, and Nasty Boys were real fat, so I didn't understand how they were good. <laughs> It was, I, I remember the show kicked off with three straight babyface wins, which I thought was peculiar because I'm like, well, something bad's going to happen now. <laughs> and it, then it did because I didn't expect the hearts to lose. Oh, how could you? I know. They were are really good at, at tag team wrestling, and the Nasty Boys were just so nasty. They were, yeah, they, they were nasty, and they, they didn't look like they could wrestle because their, their move was a... Uh, shitty elbow off the top being fat and falling on people <laughs> basically being real real bastards yeah they'll get theirs though over they, the course of the show they will and um yeah there's a lot of I, you know, I, I, I even appreciate the blindfold match as 
as a, a fun match. I remember my dad got a big kick out of that as he watched part of the show with me. He's like, he can't see, even though Toa had like two big eye holes in his, but still. They, um, they, there's a lot of filler, I guess. Yeah. But I, for the standards of a WWF card, there were more good matches on this show than maybe there'd ever been. Hmm. That's true. If you look back at some of the earlier WrestleManias, which would have their high points, but not very many of them, this had probably more good wrestling than... Uh, this had actual good undercard matches. Yes. Strange. I guess also for history's sake, if they were going to blow off both Power and Glory and Demolition the way they did, they should have just had LOD squash Demolition so it could be on pay-per-view and people 20 years later don't have to wonder why they weren't on pay-per-view. <laughs> That's all that. No, they had the inexplicable match against Tenru and Kitao, who we'll get to in a bit later on, but that was... Um, yeah, that was... I, I just couldn't make heads or tails of it back then. Demolition Pops. Even though it was crushed, it was just it was just so strange. Yep, yep. Uh, afterwards, Sergeant Slaughter threw a fireball in Hulk Hogan's face. Pete sure did. It was... He, uh, Sergeant Slaughter decided he needed some reinforcements, so who better to bring in than the Iron Sheik, who was... He was he was Colonel Mustafa. I think during his return match, they briefly threw out, like, oh, that's the Iron Sheik, and never brought it up again or explained why he was suddenly fighting for Iraq and not Iran. <laughs> Um. Yeah. Cause I mean, it's all the same over there. I guess if the last if the last eight years have taught me anything, you know, they it's I'm sure like Slaughter was probably converted Sunni, and then I assume General Adnan was Shiite. So it was actually the the unity of that I guess inspired hope that one day there can be an Iraq that was all on the same page and interested in cheating in matches, notwithstanding. <laughs> Speaking of uh, returns, Ricky Steamboat returned, kinda. He was back as, uh, he was he was the dragon, complete with a dragon costume and breathing fire before the match. Now they would they would drop in a Ricky Steamboat here or there, like, oh, Ricky Steamboat whips him into the ropes, and Savage, who was on commentary at the time, might sneak in a mention of like, oh, I remember him from Mania 3. So it's <laughs> not like he was completely a new guy, just mostly. Now, I heard they were kind of bitter over how he left the first time, and this was how they were getting back at him, but I don't even know why you would bother hiring the guy if you were mad at him. I know, and because um, well, he'd been on ice since I guess on towards the end of 89 when that yeah. the whole WCW thing he said, could I have a raise or any money? And they were like, I don't see why we would do that. <laughs> and, uh, uh, what do you think, you're good at it? <laughs> and uh, he was like, fine, and left. And uh, so here he was. He was basically just... Uh, uh, the the dragon to the Texas tornado as far as people who gave away their old life and their old world championship success just to be a thing. I am now this noun, and I'm proud. Of it. <laughs> yeah, he they would fight the likes of Haku and, and quit in October, and was back in WCW very soon afterwards. Yes, and doing much much better there. Yes, um, he had a better. But uh, yeah, I, I, plus I I think he was um. He was programmed on almost every house show in the summer with Mr. Perfect, and Perfect didn't have any of those matches because he blew his back out. So maybe things would be a little more memorable had that gone through, but instead it was he just had um, a lot of chops, a lot of fire, and really Haku felt the brunt of that, as you said. <laughs> uh, on to April with a funeral parlor. 
interview segment debuted in oh yes on the third one in a very famous segment uh, the ultimate warrior was the guest and was not treated very well as he was attacked and locked in a casket as a bunch of backstage officials had to pry him out with a crowbar an amazing segment and I imagine children in the crowd are still in therapy over it to this day I think it leads to my ability to maintain an, an erection <laughs> is that traumatic <laughs> wow. I just think about the lack of oxygen and everything goes no um, no that was uh, so intense it and, was um, like they open the casket and he's just laying there and he's like try, like you see the ripped part of the casket when you're trying to claw his way out it's like Jesus Christ <laughs> There was an article in, in WWF magazine too about the incident, which went into great detail about like how just how all of Warrior's um, respiratory function stopped, and he was <laughs> pretty much dead for like three minutes. So, good thing he's really strong. <laughs> he took his Ico for <laughs> Yep, he um, he warriored up. <laughs> I guess. Yes. There are no ropes in there to shake, but he um, he got it. no, and so. It was incidents like this that made me less than trustworthy of The Undertaker when he turned a little later. <laughs> That's true. Um, it's like, well, you know, glad to have you on board. But <laughs> Got a Jesus, little here next to your name about when you locked a guy in a casket. Yes, plus when he put all the um, enhancement fellows in body bags, I thought they were actually dead. So, <laughs> or <laughs> I was very scared of him. Indeed, he between was. the coffin, the body bags, and the fact that he didn't sell anything, I I didn't know why he was allowed to be in wrestling. <laughs> it's like, do you think this is safe? Because I don't. No. Speaking of uh, more traumatizing, on the April edition of Superstars, Jake Roberts uh, had ended a match. Earthquake came out for his own, but he was stopped by his crippling fear of snakes and. <laughs> They had a match the next week where, uh, you know, Quake was going to walk out unless he put the snake bag under the ring. Um, he uh, tied Jake up on the ropes. Quake retrieved the bag, gave it uh, two butt splashes. We did not see the impact. They just cut away to a horrified Sean Mooney in the event center. So, yeah, we have, let's see, animal murder, fire in someone's face, asphyxiation in a casket. <laughs> That's some good times right there for the PC era. <laughs> I think our last show made my feelings about this incident <laughs> explicitly clear. So, yes, the proper anything method. I can add. No. The, um, Jake debuted a new snake called Lucifer, and uh, they had a house show program, but both guys went in different directions before they could really blow it off. But it did lead to a segment on primetime wrestling where Earthquake showed up in a chef's hat and apron, and he had <laughs> Quake burgers for the hosts, which none of them found them suspicious except Bobby and... Quick revealed it was uh, it was Damien as the meat, like you know, Lord Alfred did the comical oh, or Vince was like legit pissed, like he knocked the and <laughs> stormed out, like like he had seen Linda's poll numbers or something. I don't know. Disgusting. He, um, I mean, it's a probably a good source of protein for a bodybuilder <laughs> like Vince. Yes. You know, Vince has put stranger things in his body than that. <laughs> Boom. I was just thinking more like he would, you know drink his own urine or something if he thought it would make him bigger i can see him being like real matter of fact about it for a guy who abhors cigarette smoke but loves the beneficial effects of steroids there's some inconsistencies there in what he views as nutritional 
I'm, I'm reading Chris Jericho's book right now, and Vince just seems like part of me kind of would like to work for him just for the experience of it, but part of me never wants to because it would just seem awful. <laughs> That's one of the most uh, um, interesting insights into Vince I think you can get. Um, I think Jericho, who is one of my favorite people there's been, is getting dangerously close to that Mick Foley territory where you really think Vince is your dad. Mm. But um, the just the schizophrenia makes perfect sense when you think about it. Because I mean, we we hear it play out like through newsletter third hand. Um, I mean, we're the third hand, and then Dave's the second. But yeah. Um, or wait, would Dave be the, anyway? So, but to actually for, to to be there and have it play out all the time as just part of your regular life—that's got to be nuts. Mm. I can't even imagine. <laughs> and I mean, Jericho—he he does the—he theorizes that it's just like it's all—it's all like he's pulling the strings to get what he wants out of people. I really don't think Vince is that in control of his megalomania. I don't yeah. Know you. I just remember on the Vince DVD there was a story where they were on an overseas trip and I think Vince let the air out of the big show's air mattress just to be a Frank. dick. I know, just like, to be a dick. And I think he was classic like, rib. Classic <laughs> rib by me, right? And everyone was just like, that is hilarious. Yeah. Big Show's like, Haha, I brought that because I'm in so much unbearable pain that I'm going to retire for a year, but you are hilarious, Vince. You got me. It's uh. like, Haha, you see how, because he thought he was going to, and then I just destroyed it for fun, so he's going to be in probably pretty bad pain on this charity trip that he volunteered to go on <laughs> to a dangerous place. ha! <laughs> Ah, <laughs> unbelievable! <laughs> we had our uh, actually our last our last Saturday night's main event of the year in April, a largely throwaway show. You had the battle royal we discussed, where um, Mr. Perfect won for some reason I don't know why, and Tugboat threw out the Hulkster. That was the main crux of that. There was a Warrior Slaughter match that was okay. It was notable because the Undertaker came out in a in a coffin and and like. Like Hogan tried to attack him, and like you know, he no sold it. And Warrior, like he, he like he knocked him out of the ring, but Undertaker landed on his feet. And it's like, can you imagine today? Like, <laughs> like let's have the Undertaker lose ten times to teach him some humility, and then we may give him a slight push. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, I'm sure when we were doing this show in uh, November, that Wade Barrett and Sheamus seemed like very imposing physical threats. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I remember. Th- that angle and it just seemed like the subtext of it was Hogan and Warrior and Undertaker and Slaughter all saying, man, if the four of us were ever in a match, why it would be a veritable match made in hell. Mm. Wink, wink. And then it, it didn't really play out that way. It certainly seemed to be going that way, but we'll, we'll get to that in a sec. On a less interesting note, uh, Mike Rotunda came back as Erwin R. Scheister or IRS as previously... Who's otherwise known as IRS. Yes. Vince had apparently been audited by the actual IRS, so this was his childlike payback. IRS wrestled in a dress shirt and tie, which I always thought must have sucked. Like, I don't know, that was unfortunate, but he called us tax cheats and the like, and he got a lot of mileage out of it, I'll give him that. <laughs> I never really got a kid's product using an IRS agent as a antagonist. Yeah, I, it, was, it was kind of above my head. I didn't really know what taxes were. 
Um, but I really <laughs> did not want to pay them for a long time. I was like, that's ridiculous that anyone could just come and get money from me. This, this twerp, this jerk, and, um, got, uh, a lot of times he's being choked by his tongue, which was his tie. Yep. Will you stop? And, um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, but I, I saw him on, I think, like, the 1990s Starcade and stuff doing, um, Michael Wall Street. Mm-hmm. So I, I thought, for one thing, that he, he knew a lot about money, but I didn't know how he lost all his money. <laughs> and he went from, like, really forward thinking computer stuff to just behind a desk pencil for so from a character standpoint I was I didn't really get it but it made sense to me and then um, my Jewish grandparents really got a kick out of his last name Scheister they're just like haha Scheister this guy's a real Scheister I'll bet he is I remember the after magazine. So if you want to talk about like there was like oh Jim Cornette had such a hard job because his guys would be taken from him in the middle of the <laughs> OVW. The after mag had to like explain this stuff. I think they just said he was just really confused. <laughs> Thought he was an IRS agent. Now I'm sure he was. Um, yeah, uh, but I didn't know what taxes were, and um, so I just knew this guy, and he's got glasses. So. Um, just terrible. He was one of the more... And, oh, how about the fact that he had no music? That's true. And really, no... What is his finish? He used, like, a clothesline for his finishing move. For... A flying clothesline? Yeah. What? It was called the write-off, which uh, I didn't get at the time either. No. And, oh, and when they would they would event center his match with Greg Valentine, Gene would always say, And the equally important match, Greg <laughs> the Hammer Valentine versus Erwin R. Scheister. Some may say IRS is his name. Well, looks like this match will be the figure four against the W4. And I thought to myself, ha ha, I know what that is. No, I do not. <laughs> So I thought the W4 was his finisher somehow, and uh, but then his finisher was the write-off, uh, which was a play on words. But sometimes the write-off was the flying clothesline, and other times it was the Samoan drop. Yep. But I don't know what the equivalent of Samoan to make for him would be. Uh, let's see. During a Japanese tour, this occurred. Uh, Earthquake fought Koji Katao to a no contest when Katao broke character. <laughs> used to sell Earthquake's offense and began shooting on Quake. After the bout, Katao immediately went to the floor, grabbed a microphone, and told the audience that wrestling was fake as other Japanese <laughs> wrestlers attempted to restrain him. There are clips of this on Daily Motion. if you want to laugh, uh, check it out, because it, it is what it says. They like It was like they invented UFC before our eyes. They were just kind of standing and looking at each other and yelling, and some stuff happened, and then uh, he left the ring, got on the mic, and yeah, it was like, no, don't say that. <laughs> It's like when Matt Hardy went, R-O-H, R-O-H, <laughs> in a totally real situation. Um, yeah, I guess that's, it was, I believe that's the story of how the UWFI was formed, but you can correct me if that's not true. <laughs> Sounds good. Uh, on to, this is, a, I don't have a lot for May, I'll just say that um, it says, Charlie Norris got a tryout as Thunderblood, which is a very 90s name. <laughs> I guess doing the American gimmick, um, which I apparently put the seeds in the WAF's head that that would be a great idea, but not with Charlie Norris. And uh, Norris apparently went on to sue WCW in a racial discrimination lawsuit, and no, it wasn't that famous one where everyone made a lot of money. It was like 94. 
It was. Because uh, WCW's Indian brain trust, that would have been like Thunderbolt Patterson in them. I guess. I don't know if that was involved somehow or what. But, yeah. I was, didn't know because I thought Charlie Norris may have just been Chuck Norris because I only <laughs> read his name in the magazines and it was just, I didn't, I didn't understand. That'd be a, a couple years down the road. Uh, yeah, yep. I'm looking Norris. forward to that. Oh, man. That man. should bring in some big Joe versus the World charity money. Go over that. <laughs> Um. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they they probably said, "Oh, you know, thank you for your interest, but an Indian is just not something that we feel would be realistic in today's WWE." <laughs> nope, not needed. Uh, on to June, where uh, Bobby Heenan and Mr. Perfect went on to the funeral parlor, and Bobby announced he was retiring from managing, and his replacement for Mr. Perfect was the coach, not not Jonathan Coachman. <laughs> But famous wrestler John better. Tolos as a gym coach, complete with a whistle. He was awful. And uh, I know in the aftermags they were like, oh, my God, John Tolos, a big star. Like, this will be great. He'll take Mr. Perfect to the top. <laughs> and, uh, no, he was terrible and gone in a few months. Um, yeah, I. Uh, it's, it's funny because Heenan got off the road in June and then Perfect would be done in – just two months after that so the coach's grand run ended up just being <laughs> I think introducing us to the Beverly Brothers yes and uh for perfect to go from the Heenan family to being just him Tolos and the Beverly Brothers must have been very disappointing <laughs> I'll bet yeah the- he would have stuck it out if he had the Hakus and the Barbarians of the World as backup and then when it was just Bo and Blake <laughs> uh, I don't know but he probably he probably said, "I know a guy who can help you guys. His name is the Genius." Yeah, and then maybe he probably he did. got them together. What were the Beverly Brothers gimmick? Were they supposed to be rich? Were they gay? I don't. They were gay, rich, ancestral brothers. Oh. One of them had a mustache, <laughs> and they really stuck it to Shaker Heights, which had it coming. They had a cool finisher, which is finisher was ridiculous. <laughs> it really was, if you, which was fine to put on jobbers, but it's not like they were going to do that. Uh, at least to the extent they did it, unlike the Bushwhackers. Yeah, Animal wasn't going to take the Shaker Height spike. <laughs> Basically, one of them threw a guy in the air, and the other one grabbed his head and spiked it onto the mat on the way down. Yeah, he 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 would basically backdrop him, but the guy wouldn't rotate, yeah. and then. In midair, mind you, he would be X-factored into <laughs> yeah. modern Parliament. terminology. Yes. Um, yeah. What were we ta- Oh, yeah. And then funeral parlor. I don't know why anyone would go on that show after what <laughs> happened. It's like you can promote your career. You may be <laughs> murdered. <laughs> I'd be like, you know, I'm gonna wait till the barber shop. <laughs> yes. Beefcake must have just uh, in the 1991 talk show wars that would later <laughs> play out in 2009 in a weird repeating of history. Um, if you watch the um, the early afternoon show, which is the movie they made about that with like actors doing weird impressions of of Ed Leslie and Paul Bear. Um, so uh, Beefcake must have just been appalled and like stood in front of his big glass window and said. I guarantee safety here. Nothing <laughs> bad will ever befall anyone who comes on the barber shop. And that's the barber's word. Oh. Uh, hey, remember Tugboat? <laughs> Things weren't going all that well for him. <laughs> no. Left off WrestleMania. How much? Okay, let's. I'm, when he debuted in early 90, he wasn't at the Rumble, but that's fine. He had just debuted. He wasn't at WrestleMania. He was beaten up and kept off SummerSlam. <laughs> so if I was there, he was in the ring for literally like a minute. 
he drew number 30 in the Rumble and was also in the ring for like two minutes and then uh, was left off WrestleMania again. So I think he looked around and said, I think I need a change. So during a six-man tag with uh, the Bushwhackers against Earthquake and the Nasty Boys, he turned on his partner, his partners, uh, and became Typhoon, turning Earthquake as the natural disasters, which was a little odd for two reasons. One, these were the men who attacked him a year ago, caused him to miss SummerSlam. And also, Jimmy Hart also already managed the tag champs, so <laughs> somewhat limiting yourself there. Unless he figured the Legion of Doom uh, would clearly beat the Nasty Boys and put them in line for the next title shot. That's why he was such a good manager, is um, like, a, you, you know how you have to build through the draft and draft the, the best available player regardless of position. He hmm. knew he could get these tag teams, and he would get to Money, Inc. Uh, a little later, too. Hmm. And um, But, no, I um, I mean, Tugboat's career was certainly sinking, if you will. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, so, desperate times. Hmm. But um, his, he, for him and Earthquake to both be so fat and on the same page I was like these guys are going to do whatever they want in the WWF and it didn't really happen like nope. that because I knew the earthquake who like almost killed Hulk Hogan and now for him to have someone just as big <laughs> right next to him sitting on people splashing people plus their finisher if as it were against jobbers was just like earth typhoon would do a big splash and then earthquake would do the sit down splash and i was like that is too dangerous <laughs> that is far too dangerous to be allowed to happen like you got him you got the man beat do you have to do this <laughs> no i don't know if you were as maybe anxious about their union as i was but i was i was really not feeling good about it i thought it was trouble but i i thought they should have done I thought instead of just combining their single finishers, they should have done something, you know, as a tag team as a finisher, like a double splash or something like that. But yeah. that's how my mind worked back then. But, you know, these are two singles competitors who joined, so they probably wouldn't have, like, the know-how how to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but what was cool was, um, so Tugboat turned one week, and I, my, I couldn't believe it. I was like, but Tugboat, Why? And uh, but he didn't say he was Typhoon until maybe the next week. So in that week in between, I was telling my friends, I was like, "Hey guys, tugboat turned. I know we're all pretty shaken uh, <laughs> by this, but here's what I'm thinking. I don't think he's gonna be the tugboat anymore. I think he's got a new name, the Tidal Wave." <laughs> so that's um, not bad, but you know. yeah, close, close, very close. And uh, on to July, where the, the Macho Man, had, after retiring, had to um, move to the commentary booth, where he was actually quite good. I listened to his stuff. He was fine. He was largely turned face, although you know he would not have kind words about the warrior, because he retired him, so why should he? And uh, he ended up proposing to Elizabeth on Superstars in a famous segment, the best part of which was Vince and Roddy Piper giving him shit beforehand, which I thought was... <laughs> a fun character moment, but they were to be married at SummerSlam, which ended up being a, as bad an idea as you would think, and um, also upsetting to me, because you you had limited pay-per-views back then. Usually four, <laughs> there were five this year, and I didn't want a wedding clogging up valuable wrestling time. Like, nowadays, who cares? You have 13 of them. Feel free. It's probably better than, you know, some stuff they'd throw out, but back then, it just wouldn't fly. 
No, and it was a long wedding too. I mean, I don't, I don't think we really need to talk about the savage uh, warrior finish and all that because I'm sure it's come up on every other retrospective podcast we've done. But um, uh, I wanted them to get married. I was like, yeah, you know what? This is just something I can support. It's nice. You rarely see it work out this way in wrestling, and uh, I'm sure they'll be together and happy forever. <laughs> but I, I, if you would have told me that it meant that um, men like The Undertaker and Tito Santana wouldn't even have a match at SummerSlam, I would have said, no way. No, no way. Well, if that was the match made in heaven, the main event, which we'll get to in a sec, was the match made in hell, only one man could referee that match. It was Sid Vicious, now called Sid Justice. As a kid, I thought Sid would be better in the WWF because he wasn't all that good, but he had a real aura about him. I know this seems like kind of a smart thing to think, quote-unquote, but it was kind of like what I felt as a kid. I could clearly see that Sid would do better in the WWF, although he really didn't his first run. He just uh, looked <laughs> like a superstar. He did. I know that that's what we say about him now, but it, he just did. I, I couldn't believe he existed. I couldn't believe he was Sid Justice uh, after being Sid Vicious. Mm. Um, it's rare that like just your last name can embody so much of the way you feel at the time. Because I mean, when he came in, I remember him being extremely sweaty or <laughs> or oil or whatever that was to sure. make him just pop, pop the most with the his delicious muscles. As Vince must have seen it, but um, so he he would just come out and talk a lot about justice and how he was all about justice, and I I just. I thought, oh, Sid, I never knew you felt that way. <laughs> I guess I just thought, like, the horsemen were a, a seditious, seditious influence on a guy who, when it came down to it, was really just about things being fair. <laughs> and as a, uh, a, just a purveyor of justice, he would do a, a really good job. Yeah, like when, uh, when Barry Windham was dressed up as Sting during that match with Sid at Halloween Havoc. Sid had no idea. <laughs> nope. He was very upset afterwards. He uh, so um, but he didn't he didn't stand up for justice very long at all. No. So as part of the weird 1992 WWF that was booked like Memphis with <laughs> lots of turns and title changes. But that's the story for another show, Joe. Yes. Yeah. You know where where's Sid in the WWF Hall of Fame? Like, I mean, here's a guy who did headline two WrestleManias and did have two world title runs. Like, why not Sid? I, sure I know. I guess they're waiting for the stadium show in West Memphis, Arkansas. <laughs> I would stump for Sid. <laughs> Absolutely. Who would induct Sid? Whippleman? I guess. Wasn't there... I heard these... Lothario? <laughs> I used to hear, like... I guess Harvey Whippleman wrote a book, and he had these horrible stories about Sid, like, where they shared a hotel room, and Sid would, like, just stay up all night and stare at him sleeping, and do these awful things maybe not but who knows um god I don't know I just he was Sid he was and and the weird thing about Sid was he got hurt right before Survivor Series when yes. he I mean, we'll talk about that in a minute but so he just didn't wrestle for a long time I didn't see him I guess I saw him I think he was either Sergeant Slaughter or the Mountie who he um just powerbombed the shit out of <laughs> Seconds and uh, that was like, oh my God, Sid. Uh, so 
Yeah, but so, anyway, do whatever you want to do in your format, and then I'll comment about <laughs> it and make, make a joke. Well, uh, speaking of debuts, Big Bully Pusewick debuted, managed by the aforementioned Harvey Whippleman. He, uh, he liked to steal kids' balloons, he pushed around like McGurk, but in true bully fashion, he lost to anyone who stood up to him <laughs> was not a jobber. I remember when he was in Global, he had the cool heart punch, but then they gave him, like, the stump puller as a finisher, which was strange. And and Wikipedia... All right, here's a quote from Wikipedia. Busick was also a police officer, believed to be one of the first hired in the United States at the age of 19 in 1973. Now, if that's saying he was the first police officer ever hired, I'm going to call that dubious and say Wikipedia has let me down. I think but, you need to click on the footnotes. <laughs> I think so. There may not have been one, which makes me even more suspicious. Hmm. It says needs, uh, um, what do they say? Needs uh, notification or something. Uh, Question mark. And I felt like that. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, uh, it's possible. I mean, I can't disprove that. I, I suppose so. not. This was not a bumper year for debuts in the WWE. <laughs> Skinner? <laughs> He's up next. Skinner here yet? Is Skinner in yet? <laughs> Skinner? They could have, uh, yeah, Skinner also debuted. He was the former, uh, Steve Kern. It was funny because just before this, he was in Memphis doing the Fabulous Ones gimmick, which is basically a pretty boy tag team with Stan Lane. And then he shows up here and he's basically Swamp Thing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, how did your aftermags explain that one? <laughs> I don't even think they... They were just like, uh, I don't even think they just... I don't know, they moved on you to... Did get him on the telephone and <laughs> face explain that one? Um, face off. No, I don't know. If I were to theorize, I would say he got addicted to chewing tobacco and then just let go of himself. <laughs> but I don't know. Because his program, to show you how just on fire Ricky Steamboat was, didn't he come in saying like... I hate animals. I hate kimono dragons. Think I might fancy a skin a kimono dragon if no one wants to oppose me doing this. And then Ricky Steamboat would be in his talkie box the next week being <laughs> the Skinner. Dishonor to the animal kingdom. Dishonor to the respect of nature. I will body press you and hit you with a number of uh, arm drags. And then you'll know. And Skinner was like, "Reckon you won't," but we never saw the match because they were they were programmed opposite on that Survivor Series. But Steamboat quit before there. Yeah, that, that changed around a bit. I thought Skinner was great because he was the first guy I saw do an inverted DDT, which made him awesome. A genius, a wrestling genius. You know, I like I look at Wade Barrett, who has the Wasteland, which is dumb. <laughs> and I'm like, you would be helped a lot by a better move. Like Randy Orton is helped immensely by the RKO. Like, that's a cool move, and that, you know, that benefits him greatly. If he had, like, say, the attitude adjustment, I don't even know. I don't know <laughs> where you'd be. You'd be in the Battle Royal. <laughs> WrestleMania. Hmm. I also saw Skinner, like, legit did a pedigree in one of the squash matches I saw him. On YouTube, like, he didn't, like, quite butterfly the arms, but the basic motion was the same. And I'm like, whoa. And then he, he picked the guy up because he's like, no, I must use my inverted <laughs> This will surely finish the job. Anyway, Skinner's star and, fell very quickly because he was soon teaming with legit jobbers like Barry Horowitz, which is not a good sign for your heel. That is, was weird when they would be there with the vanilla guys. It's like, you can be so much more. <laughs> you have different looking clothes. Um, not just in tights. Your name is not your name. You must be special. Um, 
but <laughs> I had a hilarious joke and I forgot it. Sorry, listeners. Uh, I will last. Oh yeah, here it is. Well worth it. Can we? Are we sure that Skinner is not just like a time traveler who came from the wrestling boom who is going to do the moves of Sting and Triple H to like <laughs> get really over? <laughs> Be like, watch this. Skinner three sixteen says. <laughs> So, I don't know. Someone have to scour, I guess, the tapes to see more telltale signs. But that is my working theory right now. That's pretty I'm traveling Steve Kern. <laughs> and the last note on Skinner, who we spent an inordinate amount of time on. But uh, the mobile we use to play music for my son when he goes to sleep, the <laughs> Am- Amazon Rainforest setting, is a dead ringer for Skinner's music. So, I don't <laughs> You should play IRS's music. <laughs> Hey, one thing that I wanted to mention before this match was in terms of the tax code. <laughs> that all of you people and all of you stuffed animals in this crib need to be paying the taxes that you use to buy them. And if you don't, I guess I'll just continue talking about this for a while. There's real no way I can force you, but just keep it in mind. We can only hope. That was his music, except on that one Super Nintendo video game that you talked about, um, where his music was just the sound of paper ruffling. <laughs> That's right. So. And he did have the flying clothesline, which was actually kind of cool in, in the video game, because guys were like running and jumping all over the place, but still. Yes. I wish Skinner was in that game. Well, I don't think Do Skinner... Think is he in the um, the new, uh, what is it, All-Stars game? Yes. <laughs> I don't, I don't believe you. <laughs> he, he is, and he has costume changes. He, um, he can be... You can do him as Skinner, you can do him as Fabulous One, and you can do him as Agent Steve Kern. <laughs> They're all um, palette swaps. But his moveset is amazing. He does, like, um, kibashi powerbombs off the apron and stuff. I'm so, going to research this. I'm not sure. Do it. Get Sven Mascarena somewhere. <laughs> uh, so I would call that an ordinate amount of time. Yes. Skinner. Indeed. Moving along, the um, Heart Foundation had their last match in Madison Square Garden. They uh, lost to the Nasty Boys after they were together like six years or something. But I'll, I'll let Wikipedia explain the aftermath. Where um, <laughs> after WrestleMania Seven, the Heart Foundation disbanded. Bret Hart and Jim Neidhart went into singles competition, with Bret having more success. <laughs> so yes, Bret began his solo run, and uh, Neidhart was a terrible commentator on Challenge. He was he was like Bruno-esque during, you know, when <laughs> Bruno would be the commentator, but he wouldn't say anything for like five minutes, and then he'd chime in with something, and you would be like, wait, who, who is this talking now? <laughs> yes, that is <laughs> the dynamic I have taken to podcasting. I just... <laughs> Say something weird after the host does a whole lot of legwork explaining things, and then I'll be like, "But what if it was a weird uh, observation about this?" And then they're like, "Oh, thank you, glad <laughs> brought you on." Yes, thank you. Um, yeah, so they, um, I think I saw that Heart Foundation match on primetime because it was there was this run where the Nasty Boys um, were cheating so hard and beating teams like the Rockers and the Heart Foundation and um, using the bike helmet and whatnot and um, was there they must have been they were getting like intentionally disqualified and running away weren't they yeah wasn't that why they made that stip okay yep. so 
They were they were really I was mad at the nasty boys and I just didn't know because within the rules of wrestling how they could be stopped from doing this. It was just too easy. <laughs> That's and right. um but uh things worked out. Stipulations happen for a reason. It's true. They're not just throwing around willy nilly like these days. Yep, yep. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what a more I guess cage match I was looking forward to. Um, between Warrior and Rick Rude in in '90, or the John Cena Alex Riley one from uh, this week, because mm. both were pretty high stakes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, there was uh, the show that uh, Buswick and Skinner debuted on was a Superstars taping in my hometown. The history of the WWF list is being heavily papered, which I call shenanigans <laughs> on because we were in line for tickets when they announced it was sold out and. I remember this because the guy behind us let out a huge motherfucker. <laughs> and to make up for it, my dad bought me, offered to buy me a Nintendo game, and I chose Battletoads. So instead uh-huh. of being frustrated for one night, I was frustrated for about five years to come. Um, I never got past that bike riding stage of Battletoads. <laughs> I, I could. I, that was a stage, like, I think once, the farthest I made it was the one you were in tubes and a big gear chased you. And that was, like, barely halfway through the game. So, Yeah. That was ludicrous. I mean, I would. <laughs> I beat Mega this. Man three, and I was like, "Oh my god, should I write Nintendo Power about this?" <laughs> because this was a game, and I beat it, which you're not supposed to do. They're yeah. supposed to stop you. <laughs> so imagine my frustration then on this just lunacy. That game, I don't, I don't understand. I haven't thought about it in a long time, just because it was so. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. No problem. Thanks, I, I, Joe's dad. <laughs> Burn. <laughs> I can cheer you up with video game talk because I believe WrestleFest came out in August of 1991. And again, if we if we made the Crime Busters happen, I'm going to plead again for the WWF to update this game and put it on your website. If if someone can make an 8-bit version of the Great Gatsby that I can play on my computer, <laughs> the, the WWF can do this. Like, did you know they have a poker site? What they do? WWF Poker or something? I don't it's un- an unacceptable allocation of resources when you can be making <laughs> WrestleFest. Uh, it's just sitting right there. I know people don't want to listen to listen to the, the insiders, which we are, and mm-hmm. take our advice on anything. But this is one you can have for free. We will disavow all knowledge. We will say sure. we heard about this, and then we brought it up just to look smart, even though we're not at all. We're real dumb. We didn't know about WrestleFest, and we claimed that we did just to try and get over. Um, but no, that game would be great. Uh, Heath Slater and Justin Gabriel would be the bosses. And, um, <laughs> I was thinking either DX, because you would have Sean and Hunter as kind of big guys, maybe both retired, or Undertaker and Kane as suitable boss characters, like clearly large enemies you must defeat. This is great. We need to storyboard this, I think. <laughs> I figure Undertaker and Kane would be book like Andre in the game that came before WrestleFest. What Superstars, was Superstars, yes. yeah. So, good thinking. Thank yes. you. On a lesser note, uh, Ric Flair showed up. Woo. He uh, didn't have the, uh, the NWA title belt. It said the real world's champion was coming. So let me ask you this. What did this mean to you, and how do you think it was handled? 
Okay, I just made it as far as this making sense to me because um, I had started watching WCW in July and or maybe June because one of my friends said, do you know there's another WW, WCW, <laughs> and you go two channels down at a different time, Saturday evenings, and I was like, huh? This looks different. It's darker. <laughs> and, um, but... So there was a clash that summer, and I was like, Clash of the Champions, you have weird names for your pay-per-views. What? Not on pay-per-view. How can this be? And I think it was Ric Flair versus uh, Bobby Eaton, maybe, in a world title match. And uh, so I saw him, and I was like, this man is an interesting man. He is... um, He's not big. (laughs) not strong. But... um, He's fighting hard or something. So I, kn- I recognize the belt, and um, but it, it's not like they've been kept separate for a really long time. So I was like, oh, my God, they agreed to work together or anything like that. It was just I recognized that belt and was like, huh, and confused and didn't know how this could be possible. And uh, so, so I got the gist of what was happening, that he was claiming to be the world champion from another place. It's just that belt didn't mean anything other to me to me other than that it looked like really big and different hmm. and the belt wasn't around for very long either I don't yeah. know how long in real time it took before they started uh, doing that but you can probably tell me um I'm not sure a couple weeks I think maybe yeah anyway but he so he showed it right before SummerSlam and yep. then at SummerSlam there was just the thing where he tried to get an interview about it with Hogan but that's that's it took a while for Flair to show up yeah and uh, they plugged him in a feud with Roddy Piper right away. Uh, Piper got up and spat on the belt when he was making this proclamation. And there was a, um, a segment later in the summer where Flair came down for a squash. He was harassing Piper at the commentation uh, booth and um, knocked him loopy with a belt shot. Vince got up, tried to settle things down, and a groggy Piper waffled him in the back with a chair. Now, you may be thinking, so what? But like Vince didn't get involved physically back then. This was like crazy to see him. I, I didn't know he was the owner, but um, he was just like you know, the commentator guy, and see him get manhandled like that. It was it was an effective thing in making Ric Flair seem uh, like something special, I guess. Because you could really Ric Flair wasn't an you, he, Ric Flair didn't go in and kick ass. He was a guy who largely no. got ass kicked, and it was just you know it was just like I'm not sure what they really could have done. I guess in a way like. I don't know. Like I, they could have done a, a better job, I guess. But Ric Flair at his core isn't a guy who goes in and he's not Vader and goes in and crushes dudes. Yeah, I'm <clears throat> the uh, the idea that was espoused in the Observer was that he would be treated like a, a total outsider from a different place and like not be a part of their system. I guess, which is hard to comprehend. 1991 WWF booking even doing that, but um. For one thing, they didn't need to like put him on an immediate house to run with with Hogan. Uh, although I guess I understand why they went to it when it would have been mm. the thing people wanted to see. And um, but he, the th- him just being, I guess it's kind of like Nexus when they were, you know, Nexus and Ric Flair, the same level of importance, but. Nexus was this outside force who came in and like beat up all the announcers and tore up the set, and then just a couple weeks later they were part of the show. Yeah. So 
Ric Flair being there, and then like Ric Flair will lead a Survivor Series team of uh, like the fake Canadian cop and the guy <laughs> Trident, and uh, kind of I guess took his um, outsiderness away. And um, but yeah, I I, I remember uh, he didn't win that hard either. He had he he wrestled Shawn Michaels and won by countout, which mm. made Shawn Michaels get mad at Marty Jannetty. <laughs> Or no, did did Marty roll Sean back? He into did. The he was knocked out when he like yeah. tried to dive and knocked himself out. Yeah, and I'm guessing Flair still put his feet on the ropes, <laughs> probably. And um, well, it wasn't his biggest win over like the Anvil, and he hurt him with the figure four. And it, losing to Ric Flair made Jim Neidhart so despondent that he went off TV and came back and formed the New Foundation. I believe you're right. Yeah, it was just. I remember when they did the house show program. I saw the results. I just thought, no, you must save this for pay per view. It's it's huge, but that never came about. At least not in the WWF. But it was just like I, I was I was more a WWF guy, but I knew Flair and just seeing him on like the funeral parlor, surrounded by freaks, <laughs> right, was disconcerting to me. He he should have been like the. I mean, he said he was a real world champion, but he was still. Like in the cartoon universe of WWF wrestling, yeah. doing their stuff, which is why that um, superstars angle with Vince was so weird because it was it, you're just used to this like happy-go-lucky Saturday uh, squash show, hmm. and then this Memphis angle intrudes with like violence and the announcers' mics turned off and just chaos everywhere. It was yeah. disconcerting. Anyway, but the, I, I guess we should. I mean, because Sid jumped from WCW in '91, he just mm-hmm. said, "I'm leaving." So, <laughs> uh, I will see you later. I don't know if you're going to let me out of my contract or just pay me the rest of it <laughs> right now. But I am taking off because I just decided. So they got Sid a, a few months before Flair, and I guess promised him the main event of WrestleMania. Mm-hmm. And if you think about Vince McMahon, I guess it, if if you offered him 1991 Sid and 1991 Ric Flair, he'd probably see more money in Sid against Hulk Hogan than he would Ric Flair. I guess that's true. That's uh, We'll get more into that in a future date. Mm-hmm. Now, the Ultimate Warrior was somewhat rattled from, you know, almost dying. <laughs> so Chick Roberts, being the helpful soul that he was, tried to teach him the secrets of the dark side. So we had a series of vignettes where Jake stuck Warrior in a casket and uh, he parried him in a grave up to his head. And finally, he locked him in a room full of snakes where a very fake-looking King Cobra bit him on the face. Warrior busts out of the room, he collapses. Undertaker and Paul Bear arrived, and it was all a setup. And then it just faded out, and I don't know what happened after that. Did they <laughs> kidnap the Warrior? Did they just leave him there? Did he have a ride? I don't know. I, I always assumed Jake snapped after the murder of Damien, but I don't think they ever outright said it. Yeah. Um, that makes as much sense as anything. Or he just corrupted... And possessed, maybe, by The Undertaker. I doubt I mean, I don't want to let him off the hook for what he no. did, because it started to cross the line in a big way. Oh, yeah. I said to trust him, and I did. <laughs> did you trust him, Joe? I did, and yeah, paid the price. But uh, anyway, you, you would think this would lead us to slaughter and Undertaker against Hogan and Warrior at SummerSlam, but they thought a... a more enticing match was the Triangle of Terror of General Adnan, Colonel Mustafa, and uh, Slaughter against the Warrior and Hogan. A match so lopsided it would be like um, <laughs> like headlining a pay-per-view with John Cena and Randy Orton against uh, maybe CM Punk and 
Primo and Zack Ryder. <laughs> no disrespect to those men, but given the level they're at, it was not... The, I mean, Punk, Otunga, and McGillicuddy. Basically, <laughs> yeah. See, the odds are stacked against John and <laughs> by one. They wouldn't even but try to sell to them. even those odds, they should make uh, Triple H the guest referee. <laughs> and so, that's basically no, what they sold to us. And, and no cheating by the other guy. <laughs> Besides the wedding and that main event, uh, SummerSlam 91 is a very rewarding show. It's got very good wrestling. It's not, I mean, it's a complete babyface triumph show because not only did they have all the titles at the end of the show, including the million dollar belt, one heel was sent to jail when he lost a match. <laughs> so that's a show you feel good about at the end. I did feel good. Um, I just, I, the Bushwhackers came out and it felt like the momentum for my side was going <laughs> to. Time sustaining itself, but other than that, it was just like, yes, this is what I what I wanted to happen. I'm pleased with this. It's like when the guy slumping in your uh, baseball lineup is at the bat in a critical pitch, <laughs> and you don't feel all that good. Yeah, it's everyone on the Pirates. <laughs> anyway, I'm legitimately mad about this. <laughs> um, the uh, didn't Bushwhackers wait? When did Andre and Earthquake do their thing? That was a couple months earlier. I think it was before the um, the natural disasters getting together. Yeah, and then Andre. Andre. Because had Andre been on? I know he did a show in Japan, maybe, but had he been on TV since WrestleMania six before that? I don't think so. No. Did he come back to be? Oh, WrestleMania seven. Seven. That's right. He was in Boss Man's Corner. So um, yeah, and then Earthquake. Uh, I guess to prove that he was a bigger, better giant. Stand on him. I guess I would guess um, they wanted Andre to come back and do some matches against him, but that just wasn't happening. No. So yeah, I mean, you had the Legion of Doom winning the tag titles. That was thank God. Nasty Boys got theirs. Thank God. You had Brett in a very. I mean, that's like you know, face a classic match against Mister Perfect winning. Unexpectedly to me, I did not see Brett at the level of, say, the Bulldog or even Ricky Steamboat. He was still very new as a singles to me, but that was not only a surprise, a pleasant one, an excellent match. And the opener was good. It was just up and down. Just um, You had great skits with the Mountie in jail, getting possibly raped. and uh, <laughs> Even Virgil. Hopefully. <laughs> Hopefully. Even Virgil winning. Man, they, you know, they don't make Virgil like winning was a great story because, like... The way they laid out the match, DiBiase was a hell of a lot better than him at wrestling. Yep. But DiBiase's own hubris brought him down. Mm. And the the uh, encouragement of Piper, I think, helped. Because mm. he screamed, come on, Verge, at the top <laughs> of his lungs repeatedly. What else do you need? Anyway, hey, remember when uh, Sergeant Slaughter turned his back on America and wished death on all those American soldiers? Pretty despicable. Well, he. I would he, say that's maybe the worst thing you can do. Yep. I don't. He was really sorry about it, and uh, he went to places like the Lincoln Memorial, statue of Paul Revere, and said he wanted his country back. And I don't know. I thought the whole thing went pretty well for him. As an excursion. <laughs> he asked politely. <laughs> and the topper of all this was um, he showed up in a, a kindergarten class, I believe. <laughs> I don't know where the teacher was. Justin, I know you're a molder of young minds. I don't know. What grade you teach, but if a, a a turncoat showed up, I don't think you would leave the class alone to go smoke a butt or what have you. But sometimes I just leave. <laughs> well, okay, and I guess that explains it. 
Uh, uh, I need to check uh, the observer, maybe, or see what the the NHL trade deadline. I just wasn't there at all. I had to. <laughs> I told them just to call me if they needed anything. So That's I mean, they're not allowed to have cell phones. So if they had called, I would have written them up for having oh, a cell phone. Uh, so you anyway, know, leading by example. Yeah. So slaughter. Anyway, fuck you, Sergeant Slaughter. <laughs> like, no. Yeah. You know what? No. He he said the Pledge of Allegiance. He started to cry. The kids all hugged him and said he had his country back. I guess it was that's pretty simple. I don't know, but he later saved Jim Duggan from an attack from those damnable nasty boys, and uh, Duggan teamed up with him in another uh, iteration of um, former enemy of America. Now uh, welcomed with open arms. <laughs> yeah, I know. I said at the beginning of the show that I welcomed Greg Valentine to my team, but with Slaughter, he was. I just. No. <laughs> Maybe if he had a better body, but no. Well, yeah, if he had muscles. Uh, Tito Santana came to the realization he hadn't been doing a lot for the last three years. So the solution was pretty obvious. He had to become a matador. There were vignettes of him going to Mexico and training. And um, these vignettes were of laser cats quality because you would see a faraway shot of a bull charging at someone and then an extreme close-up of Santana going like, ole. Like, all you could see was his face, like, going, Olay, and he would be safe. And it, not, not that he should be in there with a bull, but they could have done a better job. <laughs> anyway, he basically started wearing green pants, and the heels would helpfully charge at him so he could go, Olay. And uh, it worked for a bit, but then he was pretty much back where he started. And his finisher was called El Paso de Muerte. Yes. Which is something of death. <laughs> the punch of death. He punched a guy so. in the back of the head while jumping in the air, basically. Mm-hmm. It could beat the um, Herculeses and uh, Patanakas of the world, but that was about it. Yeah, I, I guess Santana just hit a rut. He was um, he was working hard, and it just wasn't translating to wins. He had a really unlucky run against Warlord and Barbarian for a while, and so he just um, he didn't know what to do. He was he was looking just for um, some kind of spark, and so he ran into Martel. This is the story. And uh, he said, all right, listen, we got a lot of history, and I know we don't get along, but you know me better than anyone. I'm out there, you know, I'm in my white pants. I'm doing drop kicks. I'm doing back body drops. <laughs> People put me in chin locks, and I don't give up. I get up and fight out, and it's still not translating to the W's. All right, Martel, you know, you've had a good run. I don't agree with everything that you do. We used to be friends you owe me this much just give me some advice and Martel said alright here is the secret you need to get another job <laughs> I got another job in addition to wrestling and it's just it's really worked out you need to get another job and uh, that's what he did he looked into his heritage he got another job and it was all up from there <laughs> for a bit he said you want to be something it is just the article and then what you do and then you add that to your name you're good and he said let me do you one better I'll use the Spanish article <laughs> and uh so point made alright uh let's get back to Repo Man showed up it was uh Demolition Smash which I didn't realize back then cause he wasn't shrunk <laughs> he was acting like the Riddler from the old Batman TV show and not saying he kicked someone's stinking teeth in and he was, as stated, a genuine repo man, meaning he repossessed cars and stuff if people were a day late in their payments. 
he he kind of has a cult following now. I don't know why. Like I know his music went repo <laughs> at the beginning, but it's like IRS. Like I don't know. Like, kids <laughs> upset about the repo man. <laughs> like why is why did they have tire tracks on his outfit? <laughs> why did they have a Lone Ranger mask? Why did he have a coat with license plates that spelled repo on the back? Um, the better to repo you with, my dear. <laughs> I think I actually think repo man's like a cool nickname. Like, like I'll repossess your career. Like, the, the, right, right. The repo man, Drew McIntyre, is better than <laughs> just like Drew McIntyre, but not as a job. It was <laughs> Martell's advice gone wrong. Get, a job. <laughs> Get another job. Talk about that basically all the time. Um, Repo Man. No, he was so sneaky. He was very sneaky. And um, he uh, he was out. DiBiase hired him to repossess the million dollar belt. Correct. Correct. Yeah. And how long until? Oh, that was until maybe next summer that Crush got happy and highlights and. uh, So we'll cover that, but yeah, weird, weird decisions. I didn't know people could do that. So, <laughs> I mean, he was only behind that little um, uh, mask, but I had no idea it was Smash. Certainly, oh, it seems silly in retrospect, but I had no clue at the time. I don't know. We had mentioned uh, Jim Neidhart. Thankfully, got out of the broadcast booth and back into the ring. He teamed with Owen as the New Foundation, where they wore race car esque pants and. Uh, only together a few months, but I don't know. I think they, they could have had something there. Like, you know, the nice combo of Owen doing the high-flying, Nightheart's the power guy, and they probably would have been hampered by being compared to the Heart Foundation, but we're probably different enough that it I think it could have done something. It would have been... I mean, Owen Hart certainly didn't do anything for until, um, like, he, he got... Stuck in a couple of Brett's programs just to get beat up, mm. but uh, you know it wasn't until 1993. So he went through that whole high energy run, and um, I mean I guess Coco Beware is better than Jim Neidhart, but something about Jim Neidhart is a little more legitimate than your team with Coco Beware. Yeah, but I mean I don't I don't want to commit uh, podcast slander, but I believe Neidhart was fired for failing a drug test. So. Oh, that's too bad. Anyway, we had mentioned, uh, I don't know if we had mentioned the attack on the wedding reception at SummerSlam, where Jake and The Undertaker put a snake in one of the gifts and attacked the Macho Man. I forget, was like Jake not allowed into Macho's bachelor party? I read this online, but was, could not find any footage of it. That sounds right. I think they were reception only or something on the invitation. <laughs> they took it poorly. So, uh, I don't know. Savage was trying to get reinstated. Jack Tunney wouldn't allow it, but I guess he did at some point. It was scheduled for Survivor Series, but in another famous and <laughs> terrifying segment, Jake won a squash and he goaded Savage into the ring and attacked him and tied him up. And then he took out a King Cobra, which proceeded to gnaw on Savage's arm. It was horrifying. Like the Cobra's mouth was so wide open and there's blood and everyone's freaking out and like, oh my god, like, I couldn't even believe they did this. Just one of the great Dave Meltzer stories of recent times. The Cobra went into business for itself. (laughs) Just one of the better things Dave has said this side of um, how the water polo players would dominate him in the pool. (laughs) That was tremendous. On land, he could take them, but in the water, they were just like freaking superhuman. (laughs) 
I like Dave just seem to be picking fights with people. Like, oh, surely on the if I can take this man on the land, the element surely doesn't matter. Yep, yep. But no, he's wrong. I'm Dave Meltzer. Let's do this. <laughs> oh no. Um. God, oh yeah, the cobra. Yep. Yeah, that was mean. That was um. Just really dangerous. <laughs> yeah, I see. The snake's crawling around the ring after you know attacking someone. I'm like, not that it's going to jump into the crowd, but I would. I don't know. They would not be allowed today. I'll leave it at that. It's funny. I mean, SummerSlam. Oh, and the one other thing I wanted to request for the production team is um, on the perfect Brett SummerSlam match. It would be great if they could just CGI out Coach when he takes his one bump and <laughs> yes. put Heenan in. Is that that hard to do? I don't think so. It just seems weird for that to be like basically the blow off of the Mister Perfect character, not counting his other stuff. But um, and so the wedding—they had a wedding. Imagine this, where um, I guess they do it on TVs a lot, where just the show stops at the end, and then the final twenty minutes or something, they, I what did they take down the ropes and put up a wedding set? Isn't that I believe how that so. Works? Yeah, and then just watch this. <laughs> watch this occurrence. Yep, I bet Stu and Helen Hart got the fuck out of there early to beat traffic. <laughs> I didn't see him at the reception, so you may be right. No. Yeah, so I mean, wasn't it they had the wedding at the end of the pay-per-view, and then the reception was like, oh, tune into TV, we'll show you the reception of the macho man, you'll love it. Yeah, I remember thinking, like, well, clearly something's going to happen here, and then it mm-hmm. didn't as the pay-per-view went off the air. I'm like, oh, but then wait till next week and see the horrible atrocity. Yeah, it was a wedding with no frills whatsoever. They exchanged vows and agreed to marry each other. <laughs> yep. Uh, let's see. This brings us to Survivor Series, which is awful this year. They moved it to Thanksgiving Eve. They did away with team names and added a title match instead of all just elimination matches. And um, they were experimenting with another pay-per-view following this, this Tuesday in Texas. And all of the hype pretty much got focused on that and felt like a chump for watching this show. But let me uh, let me let me be Brian Alvarez and recap the first match where <clears throat> Ric Flair won the match for his team set <laughs> outside the ring and everyone else was disqualified. He won the match by getting his ass kicked. <laughs> what? In nineteen ninety one? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> he was the sole survivor so what? He survived a fight. He won by not fighting in the fight. Good job. How many buys was that? I'll tell you. No buys. The opposite of yes buys. Oh. Uh, yes. Yeah, so that was that first. It's a, a funny collection of talent in there. It was. Uh, as far as people. Um, and yes, Bret Hart's legendary first program after winning the belt was with the Mountie. That's true. Who got a title shot after being in jail, which I mm-hmm. don't But, you know, you know belts, you know, they mean nothing. <laughs> yeah, or maybe, oh, he fought Warlord around then too, I think. Another stern challenge. <laughs> Plus he had Skinner five days later, or six days later. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Then we had a match with... <laughs> bunch of scrubs it was uh let's see Ricky Steamboat quit so they put El Matador in and I know um Bully Buswick quit so they put uh Hercules in and Nightheart was injured so they put Slaughter in after his face turn 
Right. It was, um, this was, I guess, probably the worst Survivor Series <laughs> match there's been. I just, cause usually it was balanced. Like, there was a super guy as the captain, and then, like, a secondary guy, and then either a tag team or, like, some lower people to fill it out. Yeah. And this one started at the bottom and kept getting <laughs> It was just like, I just remember, and all four of the baby faces survived, um, I just remember, I think on the Coliseum video, they had an exclusive where they were all walking back to the locker room. They're like, yeah, we all survived. <laughs> and I'm like, Jesus Christ. Ugh. He's got to keep Skinner strong for his title match in <laughs> six days. Uh, let's see. Hogan and Undertaker was, um, it was not good, but it, it was, Undertaker wasn't really designed to have good matches, so I wouldn't harm no. him. I don't want to watch it again. This is the one where Ric Flair slid a chair in, and, um, Undertaker tombstone Hogan a foot above the ring. <laughs> it still paralyzed him. Yep. Yeah, that was uh, shocking, but, you know. Because Undertaker's offense as a monster heel was basically just to choke people to the count of four and then let go. <laughs> that was his repertoire. Yeah, so, um, yeah. Uh, title match at Survivor Series is horseshit. <laughs> But I thought at the time I was like, get a team, cooperate. <laughs> cooperate. But Undertaker, I don't think teamed with anyone until maybe '95. So it took him a while to warm up uh, yep. the idea. It just wasn't good as a. He was, I don't know, like nightmare scenario. Bad news, Brown. Imagine having the Undertaker and like Ooh. trying to plan strategy with him. No, it wasn't oh, in '93. He uh, was an All American, right? Yes. There you go. Okay. So that was big. And I mean, he started it at the Survivor Series, so my point, I guess, is terrible. But <laughs> he wasn't a good teammate in 90. He, um, he had his own agenda to True. kick Dusty Rhodes. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the tag team survival match was okay. They they were building to problems with the Rockers. Mario Gennetti caused Shawn Michaels to get pinned. I remember Gorilla completely blew this call. Like, he thought Shawn just walked out and went <laughs> or something. It was really bad. Um, yeah, Rockers Breakup is one of those things where I saw it happening on TV and I just watched wrestling enough to know that this was a big, big problem. Yep. And it, like, just, I tried so hard to will it not to happen and I could, because <laughs> they were favorites in a big way. They just did so many cool moves at the same time. And, uh, I didn't understand. It was like, guys, just, you know, take a minute work it out and they didn't and I think Shawn Michaels career is far worse off because of it yep I, just, I remember the big debate of this match was who the captains of the teams were <laughs> which is a valid question it is if you had co-captains that mean you had as many co-captains as teammates so <laughs> right right so I don't I don't really know um and it never made sense to me that um why all of the heels had to survive except for one mm. I don't like who you because matches were laid out with like purposes in mind so I don't know like you you eliminate people just as a high spot in the match so I don't know why you couldn't knock that other Beverly brother out there just to do it but mm. I guess it's arguably not that important I suppose not and the main event which was because uh, of the snake attack Savage couldn't compete so they also pulled Jake out of the main event so it was three on three well, Sid was the captain of that. Yes, team. Sid was, but he got hurt. So yeah. they reinstated Savage, who was attacked by a snake and also unable to compete. So it, 
ended up being what Bossman and LOD against the natural disasters and IRS. So mm-hmm. okay, that's that's not a good start. But IRS uh, eliminates the Bossman. That's great, fine. Then IRS accidentally waffles the earthquake, so the natural disasters walk. <laughs> this leaves IRS two on one with the Legion of Doom, who he manages to fend off for a bit. And then he tries to leave. The boss man sends him back, and Hawk pins him with a clothesline off the top. Not even the big doomsday device, just the clothesline off the top. It was as unsatisfying a main event as you could possibly put together. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I was going to ask you if if there was anything that would even compete with um, SummerSlam '91 as the weakest WWF main event in their pay per view <laughs> history to date. And uh, I forgot this came right after. I mean, <laughs> the difference is that was actually promoted as the main event, but there was a lot. When you only have three to four pay-per-views a year for four years as they had, there wasn't exactly a long and complicated history of weird main events happening. Like, typically they'd be Hulk Hogan in a super-duper match and winning. So, this is uh, a touch different. Anyway, this Plus, this show was called The Gravest Challenge, Mm. which is one of those things that sounds like a play on words and just isn't. You know, I mean, I get there was a grave challenge, but the reason the adjective grave means what it does is because <laughs> it's purposefully like the noun grave. So that is not a pun. <laughs> I, can't. I guess so. Hadn't put that much thought into it. Yeah. Well, this led us to this Tuesday in Texas. A yeah, what day was that? Uh, December. No, it was a Tuesday. And where did the show? San Antonio. No, Texas. Oh. It was. It's hard to remember with these old shows. I, I, I get experimenting with another pay per view. I don't know why they added one six days after another. Like, what was the end? Were they looking to go like bi weekly? Like, why, why didn't they do in between WrestleMania and SummerSlam like they did in '93? Right. I guess it was to shoot like the hugest angle possible on pay per view, which they did like with Hulk Hogan, a controversial world title change. And then people would be like so shaken up by it that they'd have to pay again as soon as possible to see it resolve. Hmm. Well, considering they didn't, didn't do this again, I suppose it didn't perform up to expectations. Although they did so. thankfully re- return to Tuesdays um, many years later for Taboo Tuesday. <laughs> Showing a lesson was only slightly learned. Yes. Or Taboo Tuesday, as Gene Snitsky would call it. <laughs> Anyway, this show was a lot better than Survivor Series. Um, you actually had some good wrestling. You had the Randy Savage-Jake Roberts match, which the match itself was perfunct. I mean, largely an afterthought to the aftermath, where Roberts DDT'd Savage uh, like three times and smacked Elizabeth, which was just <laughs> completely batshit nuts. And it, was, it was Jake Roberts had rock powers, as rock today just comes in and says, like, John Cena, fuck you! <laughs> <laughs> Jake Roberts could do whatever he wanted at the time. As noted in Jericho's book, The Rock did say motherfucker on a uh, a show, so that's not too far off. Oh, Shane McMahon, Silver Spoon, motherfucker. You're right, you're right. And then it carries over to John Cena, too. He's just like, yo, Rock, literally suck my dick. <laughs> it's strange. That escalated. It really did. And um, the uh, the DiBiase Repo Man against El Matador Virgil match was actually pretty good, despite the the collection of goofballs in case <laughs> we're in. 
It was. I mean, Repo Man is the one who doesn't fit, but as we said, he had a task at hand. Did he was in the employ? And then now, did IRS was he involved in the million dollar belt? Like, because Virgil didn't pay the inflated taxes on it, or did they just come together by circumstance? I think they came together. I mean, I just remember, and we'll get more into this on the next show, but I remember I subscribed to Pro Wrestling Illustrated Weekly at the time and being very confused when they said DiBiase and IRS were the new (laughs) ag champs. I thought, like, they were lying to me. Yeah, yeah. But it was. I'd be skeptical too. Belts changing, the Legion of Doom losing a match. How so? To two random men. What? <laughs> right. And, uh, uh, whereas today it would just be like, oh man, they buried the tag titles. They just took two. On them. Would we really blink though at that? No. No. It would make for. It would be good for them. It'd be like, oh, DiBiase probably going to make these main event tag titles. Good job. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Those belts are so hideous. It still upsets me when I see. <laughs> Blame Bret Hart. He apparently made them. Oh, Jesus. And presented them. <laughs> oh, Bret. To his family. First, yeah, do you, do you know why Re- Bret wrestled Skinner on this show? Why is that? Well, Steve Kern time-traveled back to, <laughs> to try and warn him about all the bad <laughs> If you look when he has him in the chin lock, he's whispering and trying to explain to him about Montreal, and Fresh is like, "What?" <sighs> anyway, the the main event, Jack Tunney was at ringside to ensure no shenanigans and did a poor job. Good work. As Ric Flair ran out, and uh, Tunney took a bump, so Hogan took the urn and threw ashes <laughs> in the Undertaker's eyes, which I have questions about this. So unsanitary. <laughs> yes, and pinned him to win the belt for the fourth time, breaking his own record. But Tunney saw these shenanigans and announced he was stripping Hogan of the belt and putting it up in the 92 Rumble, meaning we didn't have a champion for the first time since just before WrestleMania 4. This dark yes. days. And the shortest title reign since probably Iron Sheiks it would have to be, wouldn't it? Um... Not counting like yeah. the Andre the Giant thing. It's just you're used to long ones and so for the a week long yeah. title reign was bizarre. It really skews the average. It does. It went from like four years to two. <laughs> also Undertaker lost with a roll up, which to me was like I didn't even know Undertaker could his body would even bend that way without <laughs> sitting up in a real stiff hard on stuff. So I was like, Well, I've I guess I overestimated just how hard this guy would be to beat. He was rolled up. <laughs> And our last note for 92, we've been mentioning the Rockers having problems. They, Sean lost the match to Ric Flair, blamed Marty. They lost the tag title match to the Legion of Doom, the Survivor Series. So they went on the barbershop. They hashed things out. They hugged. Bruce Feefake left. <laughs> Sean super kicked Marty and threw him through the barbershop window in our last terrifying segment of the year. Um, Bruce had another appointment. So. <laughs> I like, to rinse them out, I uh, think, is what you have to do. Pre-cutting is that process. So, yeah, another very famous and newsworthy segment as that kicked off the Shawn Michaels run where he got a little fat and uh, wore, <laughs> wore cow pants, basically. Um, and it's been reimagined just in people's memories that he somehow kicked him right through the window, but that's not really the case. No. That would be and it's- tough. Right, I don't. It would be like a movie set piece for him to go flying back. And that'd be hard to <laughs> you need pliers. 
Right. Um, and it, it was funny because, like, the kick wasn't even his finisher yet. It didn't really take off. I know he, he hit Diesel a bunch of times with it, to much to his chagrin. Hmm. Uh, and even then it took, I don't remember, when it, he actually started finishing people. I think he talks about it in his book. Not that his book is that great as to when his... He said, Used Scott them. Hall told him that this kick was his best move, so even though it hadn't been pinning people, he should just use it to pin people. Because he used the pile driver for a bit, I think, mm-hmm. and used the, kind of like a backdrop suplex deal. A suplex with like a, pulling their hand through their legs or something? Yeah, like he grabbed him in the nuts and suplexed him. Yup. Um... The, uh, I wanted to remind people who take Sporkle quizzes to never forget this Tuesday in Texas when you name all the pay-per-views because yes. it seems like the most missed one. That'll tr- throw you up uh, a, uh, a real curveball if you if you don't remember that one. I get confused with a lot of the one-time things like a was it like a breakdown or a uh, oh those that, something like that. Mm-hmm. Those it is a struggle. It is. All right, I think that does it for 1991. We crushed it. We did. I don't think we missed anything. I can't imagine. There was no uh, um, earthquake pooping on a snake moment for this show, but I still think... When you said Master Splinter might win the Royal Rumble, that came close. (laughs) I I kept it in check, though. I guess, well, I mean, this isn't really our terrain, but just to lay the historical groundwork for the next one, we should say that, um, and we don't have to explain anything about it, but just to cover ourselves... Um, George Zorian was indicted and went in trial, and all uh, wrestlers testified in his trial, including uh, Hulk Hogan, the biggest star in wrestling, who then went on Arsenio Hall and said that he had never taken steroids, or only taken them once to heal an injury or something like that. Mm. And um, people didn't believe him. <laughs> Go figure. Yeah. Play more to say about this in the future. Yeah, I, the, the aftermath of that will be in the, the 92 show. But yes. did you, were you actually know what a late night talk show was? At the I, I remembered Arsenio, and I remember him being on. And I remember, even being at the time, I was like, oh, I want to trust Hulk Hogan, but I'm just not sure. <laughs> yep. Um, so I guess, I mean, I didn't see it play out at the time, obviously, but in The Observer, there's stories about how immediately after this. Uh, um, Hogan had a lot of like mixed reaction or just like skeptical and um, just not the unanimous Hogan love in, in even the crowds that came to the shows and there were signs about him lying and things like that. So um, if you say that the, the Warriors failed title run was the beginning of the end of like the big 80s boom period, then this would be um, the next uh, important step in their fall. Mm. Plenty to talk about. I'm excited for 92. They had a better year of importing new wrestlers. Yeah, yeah. Much just a weird, weird year with lots of uh, turns and title changes, which is not how they do things in WWF. Certainly not. So, Which leads people to look back on it fondly, even though it was a disastrous year. <laughs> exactly. On that note, um, we will hopefully be back in a later time date with 1992 after start. Oh, I gotta sit through that '92 Royal Rumble. I don't know if I can. <laughs> but yes, we will be back soon enough. I have posted links to donate to the March of Dimes if you are so uh, inclined. We did great last time. I thank everyone who participated. We love doing these shows. We will continue to do them. And uh, I thank you, Justin, for getting off the road to WrestleMania for a bit to uh, park at my truck stop or whatever the metaphor would be. <laughs> <laughs> Gay. 
Uh, <laughs> no, listen, Joe, there's not a year or a movie with a wrestler in it that I can't uh, get on the internet and talk about for a while. That's great. My favorite people. Oh, all right. Well, we're approaching two hours here. You have to get a haircut, so uh, we're going to get off here. I thank everyone for listening. We will be back very soon. Take care.